Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Fauci. Today, my guest is returning guest, Mark Schaefer. Mark consults in the marketing space. He's an educator, a keynote speaker, and he's the author of 10 books. His latest book really focuses on why community is the last great marketing strategy, something that I'm uh, undoubtedly going to have to push back against because that sounds rather too finite. But I'd love you guys to uh, hear from Mark because he's been a significant influence on my thinking and therefore your thinking. So in the meantime, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So I I, I can see, Marcus, already that community is going to have to become part of your thinking. I'm going to have to convince you. No, 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 no. It's I'm not. Sure we'll it, get to that. It already we'll is, to- Mark. But I, I'm thinking beyond that. And yeah. you said it was the last great marketing strategy. So uh, that's the thing I was picking on, not community. I'm it is a rather it is a, it is a rather bold and provocative title. <laughs> I will give you that. <laughs> so tell everybody in a couple of minutes about your history, because um, it's colorful and the books that you've written along the way. I'm really interested in your, the evolution of your thinking, because the sequence in which those have occurred uh, tells a story in itself. I am just so happy to hear you say that. There's very few people in the world that get that. <laughs> but, it, but, but it's true. It's like each book is like revealing like the next layer of thinking in my mind. <laughs> Absolutely. And by, by the sounds of it, it's a catharsis. It's therapy for you. Some part of it is. Part, I actually address that directly in the new book. But anyway, so my background, I was in the corporate world for 25 years. I worked for a big Fortune 100 company as their global marketing director and started my own business about 15 years ago. And my business has just grown phenomenally. And I've got to work with some of the biggest brands in the world. I've worked with Dell and Merck and Pfizer and Microsoft and uh, the UK government, the US Air Force, uh, insurance companies, hospitality companies. So it's been quite an adventure. I also enjoy keynote speaking. That's actually become my biggest source of income now. It's kind of eclipsed the, the consulting. And I think that is fueled by the books. So as you mentioned, I've I've written 10 books. The books is so fortunate they've they've become very popular some of my books are used as textbooks at universities which is just the most amazing kind of compliment and validation i can think of as an author and you're right it 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 is an unveiling (laughs) and i think if you look at the at the arc of my writing and the trajectory of my career it gets down to one thing how do we become the signal against the noise? How do we stand out in this busy, busy, noisy world? Starting with my first book, which was called Return on Influence, is the first book on influence marketing back in 2012 before anybody was using that. And I recognized that the the power was shifting from big conglomerates and media companies to the individual. Like you, right? Like me. Like you've got a you've got a show. I've got a show, and now we have we're empowered to to make a, an impact on the world. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. The blackness, dark times in your life doesn't matter how much money you have. You've got this impact to have a voice. This opportunity to have a voice. Influence has been democratized. That's very very exciting to me. But it also now unleashes this new flood of content, this new flood of competition. So my books over the years have examined, what does that mean? What is the problem? How do we put that to our own personal use? How do we you know, cut through this as a company? How do we get through, how do we connect in a meaningful and emotional way in new ways when people don't see us anymore because they're watching The Mandalorian? Breaking through the wall of noise. Yeah. And that's interestingly that's the, enough, it appears to be by being quieter and more precise. Yeah. Whispering through the deafening wall of noise. How does one do that? Well, you know, I have this idea that's, that's not fleshed out. I'm testing it on you for the first time. <laughs> I'm serious. 
I've been thinking about it. I've been. I'm, I've been I'm not really representative it. of normal people. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so it, it's it's like so so much of sales and marketing is about automation and algorithms and reducing friction. And it seems to me there's this idea that adding friction adds connectivity and humanity. So think about reducing friction is working from home. Adding friction would be making people come to work, but you're face-to-face, you're exchanging ideas, you're solving problems together. Reducing friction is creating bots and taking humanity out of it. Adding friction is having the absolute surprise and delight to call up a company and have a human person actually help you. So it's this idea that that, that maybe it's time to add friction. That seems to be the myth here. Everyone's going the other direction. And maybe there's an opportunity for strategic advantage to actually add friction in certain places when it adds humanity to your process. I like where you're going. I have another thesis, which I don't think disproves it, but I think builds on it. I think the reason is that people have confused efficiency with effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And they're finding the lazy, easy, quick fix, which looks, it's got the cosmetic look and feel of being a more effective way of doing things because people do less. But if the net result is that there is an increase in non-buyers and your people have to follow up, and at the moment, I'm hearing typical follow-up numbers of around five to 11 uh, touch attempts to get hold of the human being who made an inquiry. And if you're tracking on click-through rates of 3% and 97% of your advertising spend is wasted or is attracting non-buyers, that creates a massive tariff. And at Mm -hmm. 15 manual dials an hour, as a sales leader or a sales manager, I would be very worried that my people would be spending most of their time and most of my salary bill on administration, not on the job to be done, which is to generate the revenue. Well, I'm, I'm not interested in all of the other stuff if it doesn't lead to the income. Now, having the illusion of it being effective because I might make my quota, but I've managed to irritate 9,784 people who will never do business with me in order to get one over the line. That's wasteful. And often what it does is it causes them to attract the wrong type of business, close it because they have a quota to hit, and then that creates a churn problem, which then just moves the problem somewhere else. You're just moving the pimple from one butt cheek to another. <laughs> oh, I have to. Uh, I'm going to be spending all day trying to unsee that. But I, I, I think Marcus, it, it, it's sort of the legacy of the of the Industrial Revolution, where mm-hmm. you know, starting really maybe with Henry Ford or be or maybe someone before, you know, I can't remember who the original industrial Adam engineer Smith. was. The the, the names Adam Smith. Eh, that's not who I was thinking, but you know, people like following time studies and all that, right? And so look, if, if we can apply it to making cars and steel and, and you know, clothes, then it starts to come into the knowledge worker, right? And it's like automate, automate. And then the mantra becomes works, work smarter, not harder. Well, well, you know, what does that, that mean? That was a big issue I, I faced in my management career where, that was sort of the marching orders given to us. Work, work smarter. Yeah, Frederick Turner. That's that was the name, Frederick Turner. Yeah, you know, work, work smarter versus you know versus work harder. But I mean, teach us how to do that. Mm. And 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 that is not a you know sales and marketing is not a frictionless activity. That kind of melds all our ideas together. Okay, interesting. So I see so many salespeople, so many leaders, so many entrepreneurs and founders coming unstuck with their marketing because they have a tendency to be short-term and selfish 
not relevant, not timely, and not especially valuable, then they blame everything apart from themselves. I've got bad news, folks. It's you. So give people some simple ground rules in terms of starting point. How do they start thinking as the customer? And what do they need to do in order to be able to create a reasonably sensible plan that will give them clarity in terms of what they need to do, by when, how often, and just give them a sense of certainty that they're going to accomplish their goal? Well, this is this is maybe a more complex problem than, 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 than you realize. It, I think it is the problem in marketing and maybe sales today. And, it, and it's it's this. I want to just briefly take a step up at one higher level. It's this. So the board of directors has an, has an expectation that sales and marketing is coin-operated. You point coins in and you get more coins out. Great. Now, I'm sympathetic to that because I worked and lived in that world for a long time. Now, here's the disconnect. The customers don't care. They don't care. And now we have this world where our customers have the accumulated knowledge of the human race in the palm of their hand. And they expect something better than from you than an ad. They don't want to be interrupted, intercepted, and manipulated. They don't. They want you to come beside them at their point of need. So you need them on their that, journey where they are, not where you want them. That's right. And that point of need is not dictated by a quarterly sales goal. Nope. Now, that is the heart of the problem. That's why the tenure of CMOs is going down year by year by year, because there's this this angst, this this disconnect between the historical expectations of sales and marketing and the reality of the marketing world. And here and and you know one of the the keynote statistics in that that I built the marketing rebellion book around is this amazing 10-year study that McKinsey did. They they studied more than 200,000 customer journeys and found that two-thirds of our marketing, two-thirds of our sales is occurring without us. It's people saying, hey, I just tried this product. It's people talking to each other, what they're posting on social media, testimonies, reviews, even, you know, these people, you know, a lot of, okay, get ready for the eye roll, influencers. And influencers is literally just someone that we trust. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. And that's what's driving a lot. And so now the role of the of the marketing leader is to earn our way into that two thirds. How can we be so useful, yeah. so unmissable, so helpful that people can't wait to talk about us and, and what we did? That is the magic of marketing today, not forcing people to conform to some quarterly sales goal. Okay, I agree with everything that you said bar one thing, which oh, is good. that salespeople are coin-operated. That's a misunderstanding. Um, I'm saying historically. Again, I don't think they ever were historically. Yeah. However, okay. but hear me out, because I think we will reach agreement when you realize how right I am. <laughs> People do not... I want money. What they want is the choices that it gives. The people who are genuinely motivated by money, in my experience, are ones who have been come from extreme poverty, and that motivation is driven by fear. Other kinds of people who are genuinely motivated simply by money are more often than not rather unpleasant psychopathic types who I wouldn't necessarily want to do business with. And they typically end up in boiler rooms and yeah. are working in banking and the city so, and private equity and things like that. So, yeah. again, there, there's a lot of that. And, and the last 40 years, 50 years now, actually, because Eric's Milton Friedman and the great lie of everyone's sort of shareholder value. Well, right. I've never yet come across a single employee who is excited at making, I don't know, Warren Buffett richer. 
the truth is they come to work for their reasons. They're motivated to work for their reasons. And they're trying to do things for themselves and their family. And yes. there's no amount of you trying to convince them that quarterly reporting cycle is uh, good for them is going to make any difference to the fact that they've still got to pay the mortgage and they can't afford to put their heating on because inflation and all these other things. This is the reality. We have human beings working in companies as mm -hmm. buyers and as sellers mm -hmm. and doing operations and finance. And those human beings are emotional creatures. They're motivated by a number of very complex um, factors. And our job is to get out of their way and meet them where they are on their buying journey, not trying to manipulate and squeeze them into some meat grinder where we can see them as a, an ATM machine that just happens to be organic. The question is, the job to be done by the business used to be make a profit and do a damn good job for your customers so they keep right. with you and come back again and again and again. That was lost when money was free and they were sold the idea of becoming a unicorn and that was uh, the route to greatness. And the moment the job to be done goes from doing a damn good job serving the customer and solving a problem for them to making the valuation target for the quarter, all of the jobs to be done or all the execution of the job to be done throughout the organization changes because mm -hmm. now the metrics change. And now what we're worried about are the valuation metrics. And those don't serve the customer. Those certainly don't help the salespeople sell more. And right. they undermine all of your marketing or many of your marketing efforts. Mm -hmm. so my question is, how do we define a really clear job to be done that the business and all of the stakeholders who are there to execute that job can get behind and not feel dirty and grubby and have a fighting chance of creating a sustainable business. Boy, I mean, my mind is turning in so many directions. Exactly. Now, I'll go on. So the many directions. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the highest level, the role of marketing is to create customers. Now that is a now now we can go down a whole roadmap of of all these little what's the implication of that? Now, I got to interview Tom Peters last year, and Tom Peters, he was supposed to be retiring, and he ended up not retiring. But I said, he's on my podcast. I said, okay, these you're retiring. What would be your last words to marketing professionals? And he said, here's the goal. He said, can you go home at night and be so proud of what you did that day that you want to tell your family, you want to tell your children about? And he said, that would be a great goal on an individual level. He also made, made a comment in his latest book that said, no business exists without community. Think about that deeply. So that's how my wheels are turning here. So you were talking about how people come to work. There's got to be a bigger reason than you know the Milton Friedman model. And, and the first thing that spurred was a conversation I had with a guy, he's a senior, he was the senior vice president of innovation for Hewlett Packard. And he said to me, here's the biggest problem we have right now is that it's called, he, he says, it's drain. Everybody at these big companies, they want to go try their own thing. They want to go follow their own dream because they want to work for a purpose bigger than the Milton Freeman shareholder value. And that kind of connects with this thing with what Peters was saying is no business can 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 succeed without community. What what my friend Hewlett Packard was saying is the future of business, not just marketing, is really community. You've got to create something inside the company where people feel like there's a unifying purpose that I'm coming to work because I'm part of something. I belong to something. If you don't have that feeling of belonging, then you're going to have this drain. My friend at Hewlett Packard said it's inevitable. Now, let's extend that to, to the sales and marketing and jobs to be done. You're right. The jobs to be done used to be 
sell more stuff. So how do you create customers? How do you come beside them at their point of need? Let me give you an extraordinary example. I was interviewing a a lady for the, 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 the book when I was researching for my new book. And just offhandedly, she said, I'm embarrassed to say this, but my go-to place as for issues around women in the workplace, when I have questions, when I needed, when I need to feel supported, I go to M.M. LaFleur. I said, well, I don't know what that is. She said, it's a clothing retail site. I'm almost embarrassed to say that. But they have this community, this online community. And like I had questions about a presentation I had to give. I didn't know which way to go. I went into this community, got honest, helpful, nurturing answers right away. Now, I was so curious. I joined the community. It's for for business women, but they let me in. And sure, they talk about... They talk about um, clothes, you know, they talk about, and they show pictures, but they also talk about their lives and work. And that is where this connection, where there's an intersection, Marcus, of the purpose of the company and the purpose of the customers, where the company can be better and the customers can be better if there's a unifying purpose. This retail company, they're going to be better off if women succeed in the workplace, yep. the women and, and now the women are in this community, that company is never going to have to take out an ad in, uh, again in their lives. So they don't they, have to worry about SEO because if they leave that community, they leave those friends, they literally belong to the brand. This is really interesting. Um, I, I posted a blog only this morning with that quote from Tom Peters because he sent me the book, because he was coming on to my podcast. And then when he was thinking about retiring for the second time, he did. Um, So he didn't come on to the podcast. So um, you've got got one ahead of me on there. Lovely man. In fact, Mm -hmm. I worked with him uh, in 2004. He gave me one of my very early breaks working with his team. Wow. What was interesting is his fight for diversity uh, on boards. And... I'm really excited that I'm now working on something to try and an initiative to try and drive more women and diverse um, people onto boards um, mm-hmm. to, in order to satisfy the ESG requirement of private equity. Um, mm-hmm. So, if anyone's interested in that, do uh, get in touch. By the way, as far as what you were saying there is concerned, though, I think community is definitely on the up, and I'm seeing an explosion of them. Uh, where they are high challenge and high support. There's a lot of banter and exceptionally helpful, very fast as well. Some of them incredibly active. I mean, there are a couple I can't keep up with because there's a thousand messages a day. Now, I wonder whether or not those then become a crutch and a distraction. But what I am seeing is the best of them are high challenge and high support. And I think in an environment of uncertainty, people are looking for other people like them who are experiencing the same kind of problems and uh, they have common interests, common purpose. And the whole idea of purpose is becoming more and more central, especially now that you look at the drain. I just had a a report through from Gallup saying 51% of employees are uh, looking to move now. I saw another piece saying, that 70% were looking, and that was a, uh, I think, a, was it a McKinsey poll? And as high as 80% in the sales profession. Wow. Now, yeah, even if it's 50%, as a right. manager, that is crisis because half of your yeah. people are looking. Right. See, the, and doesn't this suggest something really interesting, that your strategic advantage, if you can find a way Maybe it is community, but how do you hold on to those people? That's the strategic advantage is, is reducing churn, is, is beating the odds of those statistics. My motto in business is double the money for half the work. If there's a way uh, to do less but better on purpose, it makes sense to do that because that frees up time to do other activities, but less yeah. high value behavior. Mm-hmm. And 
the first question I like to ask myself is, is there a better way? And what am I not seeing? Because I, I seem to suffer from a lot of blind spots. And I think we all do, because we come with just our experience and our filters and baggage. The best argument that, and for diversity is diversity of thought, because that way we can iron out the ideas and um, you know, we can make sure that we're including our entire audience and we're segmenting them correctly and we're personalizing our contact so it doesn't feel generic. And we're using AI as a thought partner, uh, not to churn out more utterly banal, irrelevant, badly timed, and worthless uh, content that's utterly self-serving and puts the customer in the position of having to delete them and maybe unsubscribe them. Because the number of people who spend most of their life trying to avoid email security and uh, being blocked in this environment, you know, people like me don't respond to email because we get so much rubbish. It's just become a, a worthless vehicle. And cold calling, a lot of us won't answer the phone if we don't know who it is. So now marketing and sales still have to get in front of the customer. The yeah. job to be done is still make sales. The economy is not a good enough excuse. Um, right. It's just a constraint. As far as I'm concerned, that's a creative catalyst. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah, we still I mean, have there's... to conquer the hill. How are we going to do it, given the fact that the economy is tanked, inflation's at five, uh, 24% in our industry, and we, can, we uh, have half the headcount? We've still got to do the number. How are we going to do it Yeah, yeah. without compromising our values? Yeah, I think this idea, so I mean, connecting the dots between sort of how we started this with the, you know, the, the, the angst and the, and, the, and the issues with the disconnect with the traditional boards and what the customer reality is. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment to like say, okay, here I am, marketing and sales director for MM Lafleur. Oh, we're going to create this community. Well, what's the ROI? Well, we really don't know. And even the great cosmetic brand, uh, Sephora, they have stores in every sizable city probably in the world. 80% of their revenue is online in a, through this community. So you're right. It is everywhere. It is changing. But in terms of making that align with the historical dashboard, the dashboard of sales and marketing, it's going to be hard. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. Well, um, again, suspect what we measure needs to be questioned. Um, because for me, the time in front of the customer that salespeople spend is the most precious time. But on average, they're getting 6%, 12% is considered is pretty high at the moment. And my question is, how do we get my salespeople having quality time in front of the customer for 60 to 80% of their working day? And how do we create the conditions so that the automation and all the other stuff is in facilitating their execution of that time in front of the customer and making sure that it's followed up correctly and no balls are dropped and no opportunities are missed and referrals are gathered and um, expansions are sold and upsells are generated and renewals are uh, negotiated long in advance so that you don't have to worry about a renewal um, because it happens naturally because the customer can't go anywhere else because you do everything that they possibly want and you're looking around corners for them. And you're meeting them where they're going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that our job? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you, you started that statement with how do we use AI? And where my mind started going was how do we spend more time with our customer? How do we build closer bonds with our customer? How do we get in front of them easier? How do we negotiate the contract way ahead of time? And in my mind, I'm thinking, community (laughs) when it's not ai at all you know and and and, and, you know and by the way i don't want to sound like a hammer looking for a nail when it comes to community it's more of i haven't cracked the code on ai for a lot of those questions that you're coming up with i i I, you know and and we got to be careful not to be so intoxicated Mm -hmm. by 
the technology that we forget that human element. I'm going to interject because I'm what I'm saying is uh, both are essential now. Yeah. Uh, community. If you don't do community, you're insane. I mean, one of my favorite stories was spec savers in Denmark. They were trying to recruit um, an ophthalmologist. Um, they had to speak to 1,200 of them to find eight candidates. And about six months later, they had to do the same thing again. And then they thought, well, why don't we set up a community and have all the ophthalmologists in Denmark come to our community and find interesting stuff about running an ophthalmology business, later scientific uh, journals and all that kind of stuff. And we'll happen to have a recruitment page. So they cornered the recruitment market, got everybody in there, and now they never have to waste 1,200 times five or um, 33. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful story. I wish I had that before I wrote the book. <laughs> I would have put it in the book. <laughs> well, now, how do we use AI? Well, the way I like to use AI is to help me design the job to be done and the frameworks to get to the, uh, the community. Yeah, that's interesting. To understand that's the community, to read the psychology of the community, and to work out trends so that I can meet them where they are. And mm -hmm. this is the beauty of it. When you have the hybrid, that sort of AI-human interface, a mm. partnership aimed at very specific problems with yeah. a solution-focused outcome, then you direct the technology to give you really useful insight. Yeah. And for yeah. the intersectional moments, yeah. the really important thing is to have it set you up so it uh, argues with you and tells you why you're wrong. Yeah, that's, I mean, wow. I mean, I, I'm with you 100%. And what I'm experiencing in my own community is... I'm getting so much insight, so many new ideas. Literally, every piece of content I write, every speech I give somewhere, there's an idea or an inspiration I'm getting from my community. Now, you think about scaling that for a company or a brand where this community is helping you become relevant because they're telling you, this is what we need. This is what we need. This is what we need. This is what we see. We have this new pain point. And I, I think you're exactly right. The role of AI will be merging that connection and helping us find the needle in the haystack. The Sephora community has something like 6 million members on it. There's got to be AI behind that. You know, just judging where things are going and what are the, what are the word clouds and what are, you know, oh my gosh, you know, what this thing is trending. There's got to be stuff there. So, I mean, you're right. I think... The future is, really is going to be connecting those two things. Yeah, it gets really, really interesting when you start to have it bring real life, uh, real life data. So yeah. you, um, the current financials, and then you can interrogate it through many different lenses. So one of my favorite things is to um, build a panel. So it might be a panel of chief financial, uh, financial officers, and I want them to have different characteristics so I can pull one in at a time if I want to, or I can have the entire panel uh, look at their levels of, you know, their priorities and paranoias, um, and then examine my proposition or look at my business case or look at my copy through their eyes. Now, before I couldn't do that, the AI now can track. I've got a, a technology that I'm uh, working with um, where we can track every cent of revenue, where it came from, through its data source, the funnel or magnet it went through, or whatever um, touch points it came through, which technology it touched, which features in the technology, and which mix of technologies it touched, uh, which human beings touched it, and what the conversion rates were. And we wow. can model by just changing this or removing that what the impact will be, so working with an e-commerce company, they were running about, I think it was 1,283 ads. We identified that there were two that were outstripping every one of the others. And for 50 grand, they got 2 million back. Wow. Yeah. And it was precise. It was instant. And it was knowable. Now, when you're tying that to trends in your community and you're using it to track the types of conversation, the type of language, you can then be where your customer needs you to be. And now you can personalize. Yeah. Truly personalize. Truly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not at scale. You don't need to do it at scale because what you don't need to do is 
try and bring in everybody. You just bring in the right ones for that particular product at that time. Okay, so the key from my perspective is to build your medium term pipeline when the buyer is in the passive looking phase. That's, our, that's the most important phase for both sales and marketing to be touching the customer, but not trying to sell to them. Mm-hmm. Try to be valuable, timely and relevant in order to understand where they are going to be. So then it's just a matter of making sure that we understand what that will look like. So when it happens, we prime them to come to us. Now, then the friction begins because now you go into the discovery, but now you make it so easy for them to say yes to you. And if you've had six months or a year or three years even, building that relationship up with multiple people in the organization, then when they go from passive to active looking, everyone else has one point of contact, maybe two, and they're technical and they're trying to flog something. You've consistently over time been timely, relevant and valuable. You've earned trust. You've shown vulnerability. You've created moments of intimacy and you've demonstrated low self-orientation but mm-hmm. you do have it, which means you're long-term selfish. You want, they know you want something back. And mm-hmm. reciprocity is working in your favor. All of this is possible, but it requires deep thought and a bit of effort. And I don't think there's anywhere near enough reflection and deep thought. And that's my big bugbear. So um, what would you say to that? Timely. Relevant so, and valuable. Timely, relevant, valuable. So what I was doing is like, <laughs> using that checklist against the, what I teach in, in, in my classes, and I have a model, I think it's going to line up fairly well. R-I-T-E-S. R is relevant. I is interesting, aka valuable. I'm not going to waste your time. T is timely. And then the last one, which which would be different, and maybe it's 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 less relevant because I'm I'm te- teaching more about marketing, is entertaining, you know. It, it, and the E is because, again, it gets it gets back to this point about how are we the signal against the noise. Everybody can be our you know relevant, interesting, timely. I mean that's kind of commodity. But a lot of companies aren't thinking about how do how can we connect in a way in a way that's 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 maybe fun, that's entertaining. And sort of the data behind this is um, there was a study done a few years ago by BuzzSumo and the, they're, they're in uh, London there. And they said the word most associated with content that goes viral is awe, A-W-E. Like, wow, never saw that before. Yeah. You know, so I, so I wonder if that could be an interesting idea for sales as well. You know, if you're trying to break through, if you're trying to, people need humor. They need to be, have a little wow in their day. I tend to talk about contrast because they need to see a comparison between where they are, the status quo, and where they could be. And they need to understand that not only is uh, why it's better for them in their terms, but that it's possible. So we need to create a map to be able to accomplish that. But the problem is that very often we rush ahead because we've already got the idea in our head and our job is to enroll them. It's not to convince them. Oh, Um, wow. That's a strong word. Isn't it? Yeah, that's a strong word. If you don't enroll them into it, then chances are it's coercive or it's manipulative. Whereas if they're volunteering, and it's because of the awe. It's because it's engaging them in something that they genuinely feel matters. It's important. It's meaningful. That's how we get people to engage. You know, then there's a sales methodology called challenging. The idea is that you do your research, and even if it's wrong, you demonstrate your value to the other person by delivering a hypothesis that enters their workflow in a unique and original way that they've never thought about before and positions you as their ally, not their adversary, not their accomplice. Now, the problem is most people come in and they do a really bad job of it and it's insulting. 
And it's because they haven't done the deep thought. They haven't done the research. This is part of the problem because everyone's in haste. Yes. And the slowing down, the shifting of temporal focus from the immediate to the medium term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an enigma. <laughs> it is because, I mean, the world is not going to slow down. <laughs> no, but when you do a fo- refocus on developing your medium term pipeline, yeah, then um, what happens is your conversion rate goes up. And yeah. significantly fewer of the wrong prospects for you to follow up. Yeah. So not only does your conversion rate go up, but so does your satisfaction rate. Your engagement levels go up. Retention rates go up because you're not selling to the wrong people. And you don't have to do fireside sales. So you're not giving away margin. Yeah. Yeah. Agree 100%. So, okay. Give me some stories about um uh, yeah, blind spots and uh, denial and um, you know, folks um, who seem to manage to get in their own way. Um, because I think there are going to be a lot of people out there um, who maybe what used to work didn't. And what they're doing is they're doubling down on stupid by working harder, doing the stuff that doesn't work um, yeah. in under the illusion that it's a numbers game. And it ain't. So let's hear uh, tales from the crypt. <laughs> Come on now, that's ageism. <laughs> I know, but I'm sure you know. I'm just trying to make you feel at home. Look, tales from tales from the crypt, Marcus. That's worse than seasoned. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I wasn't trying to date you. Promise. Uh, yeah. Well, well, look, look, dude, we're not that far apart. So anyway, <laughs> uh okay. So here's. Here's the biggest thing. Here's the biggest blind spot I see in my world, maybe the world, and and it's this. So for the last seven years, I've been shouting from the rooftops, talking about the importance of the personal brand. I think this is the only equity we can have in our careers. It's the only thing we can always take with us that nobody can 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 take away. And when I say personal brand, it's just this simple. It's not being famous. It's having the reputation, the authority, and the presence to get your job done, to get the calls returned, to get the doors open. That's it. And if you're known and your competitors aren't, you're going to have an advantage. Now, here's why this is even more important Today, and this is the blind spot. People say, oh, well, I'm happy. I've got a job. I'm doing fine. We've got this thing called AI coming down the line. It's already here. You know, it announced itself last, really in November, or for the first time, artificial intelligence is now as easy to use as, you know, a Google search box. And the world has changed forever. And I literally believe the world has changed forever. I use those words for the first time in my life, when I saw ChatGPT said everything, marketing, sales has been changed forever starting today. That is a bold statement. I've never made that before. Now, when this came out, I asked, I interviewed famous tech analyst named Shelly Palmer. He said, I tried this out. It's writing blog posts for me. It's absolutely terrifying. He said, I'm 80% replaced. Now, What's the 20%? The 20% is his personal brand. He's known. He's trusted. He's beloved. He has nothing to worry about. AI can't touch that. Can't touch that for you, Marcus. Can't touch that for me. And here's the blind spot. Almost nobody in our world is working on that. They're not doing the work. And what I mean is showing up, creating content. This is your opportunity. This is what we talked about, you know, 45 minutes ago in the show is influence has been democratized. You've got a chance to show up in this world in a powerful way, in a way that has impact, in a way that makes you known in your industry. And almost nobody is doing that work. And today, Uh I think the personal brand is so powerful. It's so important, especially for small businesses 
The personal brand is the brand. Uh, I build on what you've said. And I think the, the other part of the 20% is the thinking and experience that you've got that is unique. One of the reasons why I've come to the conclusion that I cannot give enough away um, is because while people take my stuff, and I'm delighted that they do, they are welcome to steal it because I think it elevates. I I don't put stuff out there that I think is rubbish, and I think it elevates uh, the the conversation. But what they don't have is the original thought, the process, the context that got me to understand that. Now, Uh that is part of my personal brand. The other Uh part of my personal brand is my word. And Uh this is one of the most important things that I think people forget. Uh If you are not impeccable with your word, then whilst people can forgive you, they cannot forget. So there is a very, very strong argument to always tell the truth, even when it may hurt you. And especially when you are responsible, you take responsibility because what people are looking for is an ally. They do not want someone who's trying to pull a fast one or take advantage of them. And there are very few experiences in life where you can trust someone fully. Well, if you are consistently reliable, consistently competent, and you uh, turn up, share intimacies, you're vulnerable, you give without any expectation of getting something back. Whilst they're in that passive looking phase, they know that there is an agenda. They know you are a salesperson or a marketer, and they know what your job is. They're not naive. The challenge, I think, is that buyers need to feel safe. Mm -hmm. And they don't when we try and coerce, when we manipulate, when we lie, when we omit, when we put them under pressure, when we create some false uh, deadline uh, because we have quarterly reporting number to fix. Um, So, uh, I mean, a really simple solution is bring the sales quarter forward one month. If you bring the sales quarter forward uh, to month two, then at at the end of month three, you're not at the end of the quarter. You're not having to discount. And whilst everyone else is, you're not. Mm -hmm. I mean, simple stuff like this. Just think about how much time you can save by not attracting the wrong prospects, by uh, not churning by expanding sales, how much more profit can you make? Banks did a study in 2019 in the SaaS market, and they found 18% profit for new business, 170 for upsells, 1150% for expansion sales. But most people don't look at the expansion sale anything more than organic. They don't think about the JVs, the supply chain. I fundamentally believe that every buyer wants well-prepared, well-rehearsed and provocative salespeople, people who are going to make them think, stretch their understanding of what's possible. Um, yeah, maybe that, maybe that gets to the E I was talking about. The challenge you've got is that most salespeople turn up and vomit product information. Um, senior executives are about to make a very important decision that's strategic and likely to affect their career if they get it wrong. Yeah, um, right aren't looking for a product, um, you know, a catalog uh, in a suit. And what they're looking for is someone who's going to help them expand their thinking and advance them towards an understanding of their real problem so it goes away forever. But because everybody is hurrying, there's a tendency to end up in a situation where they offer point solutions without thinking about the interconnectedness of the problems. And so what they're doing is they're solving point problems, uh, point symptoms, which are part of a wicked problem. And so then all they do is they shift the problem downstream. So I was having a conversation with the head of CS yesterday, and his big problem is sales, as um, closing sales prematurely without having done a proper job. And so he is then having to meet the mismatched expectations that are impossible. And so they're churning customers. Well, what's the point in spending all that money to bring them in only for them to go out the back door. And then CS gets blamed for not doing their job. Well, it was sales that didn't do that. 
And it was probably marketing that didn't do their job because they were attracting the wrong customers. And mm -hmm. it was the leadership that didn't do their job because what they were trying to do was make a valuation number instead of look after customers and develop good product. Duh. Am I just being old and curmudgeonly or am I being reasonable? Well, no, you know, I'm, I'm a marketing guy, so I agree with everything until you say it was probably marketing's fault, you know. <laughs> well, I went beyond you. You sort of went into fantasy land. Because <laughs> marketing never brings the wrong leads. No. <laughs> okay, moving on. So tell me this then. What are the, the, the questions that... Um, marketers, marketing leaders should be asking themselves. And I'm particularly interested in the unasked questions, the <laughs> ones that, um, about alignment and about um, you know, responsibility and uh, stuff that everyone shirks and avoids. Honest, I mean, boy, what, a, what an exciting and interesting question. And I mean, I think that my answer would have been so different like five years ago. Well, I think the question a marketing leader has to ask is, what is the world I live in today? And gone are the days where we have this big brand strategy where we're broadcasting to the masses. And today it's like, how are we relevant today? What is the world today? What is the culture today? And I mean, I think it's, 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 it's that simple and it's that, it's that complicated. The, the, the marketing, the CMO of Pepsi made comment about five years ago that I didn't understand. He said, the days of the brand bonfire are over. It's about creating sparks in and being relevant in cultural moments. I thought, well, that's a good soundbite, but what does that really look, look, look like? But that is the way it has played out. It really has, is that even the biggest brands are saying, how do we connect right now? What's going on in the culture right now? How do we explain our company, our brand in a way that's relevant to what's going on right now? I even had a conversation, Marcus, with a guy. He was a the head, like he was the head of brand narrative at, at, at we say Adidas, you would say Adidas. And he said, I look at the brand as, as a canvas for our customers. Boy, that's 180 degrees from where we were five years ago. So, so that's the question, is, is what is the world I live in today? Now, that is interesting because I think, that, again, to build on that, and what are we doing to prepare for what is coming? This, I think, is a really interesting question uh, to ask leaders. That it comes, uh, there are a couple of questions I like to ask. What are you doing to prepare for what's to come? And what's mm -hmm. currently impossible, but if it was possible, would change the game. Mm -hmm. Now, those two questions open up a really, really interesting discussion. Yeah, and, and the thing that's where it's getting weird for me, I mean, that's the world I live in, a word that people have has have been using to describe me is, is futurist. It's a word I've been hesitant to adopt mm -hmm. because it's sort of like one of those words like expert where, you know, I think someone else could, should put that crown on you before yeah. you put it on yourself. But nevertheless, I'm immersed in what's next. That's where I dwell. That's what I love. And that time horizon has just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. It's like, you, you know, you could kind of see where things are going to be two years from now. You know, I, but it, it's just the, the ability to answer that question about what's, what's next and how do we prepare for it? It's not two years anymore. It's, it's just getting, getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Here's, here's just a tiny example. Like there was someone in November that was projecting the implications for AI. And they said, oh, well, for this thing to happen in AI, I would think it was gonna, it would take us maybe seven years to get there. We crossed that milestone in March. So there's this, there's this idea of just number one, the time frame being smaller, the events that impact that time frame 
being more unpredictable, like a pandemic or a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal, which throws the supply chain. You know, for, 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 for six months, marketing was a, a ship stuck in the Suez Canal. It affected the supply chain so much that companies could not do product launches. I, I, I had a security consultant who specializes in maritime security on the podcast about three months ago. And the effects of that are still being felt in the supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we are now in July 2023. Yeah, it's a you know, it's it's a it's a COVID outbreak in on a in a port in China. That's marketing today. You know, increasingly it's stuff that we context can't, we can't see, we can't predict. We have to be really, really aware of context. Yeah, you do. That, and that, that's what I said. The question yeah. is, what is the world we live in today? Yeah. Um, if you don't sell from a contextual perspective, you're just going to be using cookie cutter methodology. And the customer responds very poorly to that. Which, and if you then make it worse by going cold, then you've got about a 3% conversion rate. Now, I agree with you on community because when you turn community into ecosystem and the community is of adjacent experts and they then bring value to the community, which is the shared target market, that's a really, really interesting proposition. And people like... No, it is. Isn't that really sort of like the, the how you future proof? Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, I'm trying to pull one of those ecosystems together. We're very, very close to going to market now. And the beauty is our objective is to target the same uh, organization simultaneously. A hundred of us target the one company and armed with the same dozen or so questions, then bring our insights together and then write to the chief exec. Now, if we get three or four referrals over the course of a month, which is what all of us will try and do, and none of us will speak to anyone outside of our normal remit, because the objective is to cover everything, but um, make sure it's just business as usual, so it's no effort on all of us. And if we happen to win business, great. If not, what we do is we write to the chief executive and we say, yeah, Mr. Schaefer, we've recently conducted 400 hours of research in your business. Your data and your people inform us that you're losing X tens of millions per month. Um, invite myself and my team in and we'll map out a pathway to eliminate all of these problems and which six you can begin in the next 90 days to self-fund the rest. Now, that community, that ecosystem, is effectively a closed economy because as we yes. solve a problem, right. it creates new problems. And right. those new problems, when solved, create more problems. And the beauty is we help them achieve their job to be done, which is their growth objectives, but we can accelerate it because what, what we're really good at is identifying the connections between the problems and eliminating the stuff that's wasted. The stuff that, if you take it away, makes you profitable, frees up resource frees up investment capital and means you don't have to give away so much equity or get diluted and you have a bit more control. Yeah. 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 I love that. You know, one of the case studies in my book is about a a woman that has a community of, of 80,000, you know, people in her, in her community. And it's, it's like, she's insulated. She's insulated from anything that could be, happening in the world because as long as her community is purpose driven and relevant that's the job and and has a culture of safety buyer safety kind of gets down to that right that's number 1 in a community is buyer safety she's she's basically future proofed herself she doesn't have to worry about the price of facebook ads going up or down she's 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 kind of insulated from churn in a sales department She's insulated from a ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal, to some extent at least. And uh, yeah, so that's an interesting way to to tie it together. Fascinating. Okay. Look, Mark, we're we're coming close to time. Tell me this. One of the problems that many people, I've suffered from this um, for quite a while, as we gain our experience and expertise, then we know 
lots of things. And uh, the temptation is to tell people. And the danger with that is that no one buys because of the tyranny of choice and confusion. So what advice would you give to someone like me who really wants to attract the right type of customer but needs to narrow their messaging to something that's tight and elegant to create that interest, that curiosity? Yeah, I think you already said it. And it it was this, you were talking about differentiation and salespeople, and you talked about value and timely and relevant. And you said, and, and, and you talked about the importance of showing up in a way that gives value. And to me, and you talked about experience, right? To me, the and you're already doing this. The thing that differentiates you is that you deliver insights, not information. If you deliver information, you're a commodity. If you're delivering something that people can Google, you're going to be replaced. But you deliver insights because you you're you're curious. You connect the dots, and you 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 put things together that no in a in a way that nobody else can do. So I think that is really the key advice I would give to anybody: is that you have to focus on delivering insights, not information. Okay. And there's a certain amount of courage that comes with that, because an, an, an insight means you're willing. To, to take a stand on something. It's a, it means you're willing to be vulnerable and saying, this is what I learned. This is the mistake I made. Don't you do that. That, you know, an insight can be that simple. So, I, you know, it's something that not everybody can, can do because I think you do have to have a certain amount of courage. It, it's, you know, it, it reminds me when I was interviewing Tom Peters, the word that came into my mind when talking to him is bold. I mean, that man is just so interesting because he's bold. And what is bold? It's it's telling the truth with courage. That's bold, telling the truth with courage. And if you do that, it results in an insight. And that's what will make you stand out. That'll help you be the signal against the noise. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Uh, Mark, we need to wrap up now. What would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to? Obviously, Belonging to the Brand and Marketing Rebellion are both fantastic books. Name was a fantastic book as well. Thanks. Um, uh, the one that I thought was really interesting was the one uh, where you wrote about advantage being a cum- yeah, cumulative advantage. That was fascinating too. And it's. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, first, thanks so much for your kind words and and thanks for the great great time together i mean i was i've got a whole list of ideas for blog posts based on our conversation today <laughs> so that was a hell of an interview <laughs> uh yes so uh you know here's i mean i think today let's get back to this idea of what is the world we live in i'm not reading as many books today because I'm 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 looking at authors, writers, bloggers, podcasts that are that are they're talking about you know what's next, what's next, what's next. So I'm I'm like learning about Gen Z. They punch above their weight in terms of impact on the culture and and taste making. You know I'm reading about just uh, shifts that are happening in in trends in taste. I'm reading a lot of curated newsletters about trends. I think to be effective as a, as a consultant, as a thought leader today, to create insights, you've got to be just sensitive to what's now, what's now, what's now. And as I wrote in Cumulative Advantage, and thanks for the kind words about that book, is that being relevant today is applying your skills against a seam. A seam is a change in the status quo. It's a shift. So in this fast-changing world, we can't keep getting new college degrees. I don't even know if we can read books fast enough to keep up. But what we have to do is say, here is our gift. 
here's our strength. It's uh, the analogy I used was you're a surfer with a great surfboard. To be relevant, you don't need a new surfboard. You need a new wave. And there are new waves coming at us every day. So part of this idea of being relevant is being aware of what are the new waves. That isn't coming through a new college degree. It may not even be coming through books. It's just like being really hyper-tuned in to the changes in the world. Interesting. Okay. Fabulous. Mark, how can people get hold of you? Super easy. You don't have to remember my name, which is even harder for people to remember how to spell than Couchy probably. All you have to remember is businesses grow. If you can remember businesses grow, you can find me. Businessesgrow.com, my blog, my podcast, my books, all my social connections. And uh, I'd love to, uh, to hear from you. Excellent. Mark Schaefer, once again, thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquist, the podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please do get in touch with Mark. He does do keynote speaking. He uh, consults. So bring him in to kick your uh, marketing team around and also your leadership. If you want to get hold of me, then there's a link in the blurb. I'm currently looking to take on a handful of senior executive clients. So I'm now launching a premium program where we are offering 50 hours of coaching within six months. So it's very intense. And the objective is to help you accomplish some rapid turnaround and put a plan in place that's executable and to give you a clear pathway to achieve your goals. So if that's something that you're interested in or you just simply want to talk about coaching, then drop me a line. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.